Hi, my name is Jamil, and you're listening to Public Health World. Join me as I interview people making a difference in the world and their communities through public health and global health alike. This podcast was recorded on Ghana country. I would like to pay respects to the Ghana people, past, present and future. I would also like to acknowledge that this land always was and always will be Ghana land. I would like to pay my respects and acknowledge any other First Nations people listening in Ghana country or around the world. Today, I'm here with Dr. Ben Lemon. He is a sociologist and youth worker and works at Flinders University as a lecturer and researcher in the social work department. Today, we will discuss his research on bullying and loneliness, and we will also talk about how public health relates to his work and his chosen profession. Sit back, listen, and enjoy. Recording now. Hey, Ben, thanks for being on the podcast. A pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, finally. Almost this time last year, I think, uh, a bit, bit later than this time last year was when we yeah. kind of talked about it. But yeah, just everything happening, as you know, it just time well flies. Yep. So um, I, as I usually do, I'm going to start with a couple of icebreakers. The first one has nothing to do with anything, just sure. everyone likes food. So what's your favorite food? My favourite food, uh, that's a really good question. Um, I actually like lots of different food, but if I was going to go out for dinner, I'd probably choose like a Indian place or a Thai place or something yeah. like that. That's usually yeah, fair. So yeah, just list. slightly spicier food, I'm guessing. Then. I do like the slightly spicier yeah. food. I had a really nice um, uh, marinated paneer kind of, uh, it's, it's like, I can't remember the name of the spice, but like an Indian spice pizza recently. Everybody else around the table was like, oh, that's a bit hot. Mm. <laughs> Me was just the one. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And, um, and the next one is my favorite question always. Um, if you could change one big problem in public health, in your case more on the sociology and youth worker side, mm. what would it be? Oh, great question. Uh, I talk a lot to the students in my topic about um, the, the emphasis that exists in our sort of public policy and, and social policy or in our public health on uh, the kind of hospital-based intensive, uh, in, in, what do you call it, responsive, I suppose, um, health emphasis. So, like, all of our money goes to hospitals, right? Yes. And I would just like to have a much broader scope than that. Like, yeah. Imagine if we could actually think about preventative stuff. Mm. But, but even down to, I saw a... Uh, presentation relatively recently from a um, uh, an academic who was uh, really interested in uh, like trees and, and canopies, right? And mm-hmm. he was looking at the the cost saving for cardiovascular uh, issues of local councils investing in greater canopy cover. You know, there's a, a correlation he was saying between uh, the how green a suburb is and the likelihood that people will walk in it. And therefore, getting yeah. passive uh, fitness. Yeah. Social terms of health. That's exactly um, right. Yeah, it, it's we were doing. We we're talking about this in my contemporary health issues class. Excellent. Uh, uh, with Jane last year. 
Um, Very cool. And she was talking about um, how uh, if you're in a poorer suburb with less part, even just physical walk, walking paths, yes, exactly. you're less likely to go for a walk. Yes. So ha- adding that extra couple of hundred dollars and putting in a footpath yep. actually saves money. It's like, yeah. um, what, what is it, eight heart disease, like 98% preventable yeah. through diet and exercise. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, so, and I agree, yeah, definitely. So, yeah. I think it's only three or four percent of the Australian dollar that goes to public health right now. It's yeah, tiny. Right. That is really tiny. Yeah, as I said, like compared to the amount of billions that we put into the healthcare system, and a fraction of a fraction of that is public health money. Yeah, and which you could easily mm. improve not only like your health, but your mm. your lifestyle. You could mm. improve your you know, aesthetic experience. You can improve the look of our suburbs just by de- designing our space a little better. Um, it's just mm. a brainer in many ways, but it's hard to argue. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely, yeah. So I'm going to break this first que- this first actual question down into two questions. Yeah, great. One, what is sociology and what is youth work? Okay, great. So two uh, different fields that I kind of bring together in my work. So sociology, the easiest way to describe it is the, it is the study of kind of modern society. Uh, so you have history looking at the past, you have anthropology kind of looks at all of um, human you know, uh, action, etc. Uh, but sociology is really interested in the contemporary and looking at society as a whole. So how do we work and live and connect together? So that's yep. sociology. Uh, youth work is uh, my profession that I was involved in before I became an academic. And youth work is about working with young people. It's about building a professional relationship with young people and working with them in their social context. Uh, when, often when people think of youth work, they usually think of kind of that uh, person who maybe sits down with a young person, does some mentoring, does some interpersonal work. And that's a really key part of it. Uh, but youth work is also about uh, some more broader structural conversations and advocacy and, and thinking about youth as a, a social phenomenon, which is why it connects so well with sociology. In many ways, I just call myself a youth sociologist, and mm-hmm. that's what I'm really interested in. So thinking about this period of life, this phenomenon, this experience that is being young, and how that is a, a large part just created and influenced by the way that we think about young people and, and the mm. way that we create our culture. So that's what I like to do. Yep, definitely, yeah. So what do they, I suppose you did kind of answer it, but what does uh, youth work and sociology actually mean to you? Yeah, so it's about, for me, uh, thinking critically and applying the tools of sociology. So sociologists are often very interested in questions like power and inequalities and social systems and saying, what if we take that lens and think about young people's experiences? How does that give us a new insight into the way the world works? And so there's one of my favourite sociologists, his name is Howard Becker, and he said that often we think about uh, why young people cause so many problems for adults. Right? He said the more interesting sociological question is, why do adults cause so many problems for young people? You know, how do we create a way of being young that is actually really difficult and uncomfortable and doesn't work? And perhaps that's why we have these conflicts and issues and inequalities. Yeah. Yeah, no, that sounds cool. Um, so what does public health mean to you? Yeah, Lou, I was thinking about this, and I think we've already started talking about mm. it, but it's the social determinants of health mm. idea, right? So it's looking at the way that public health 
is influenced and shaped by your gender or your income or your culture or your education, your social status, food, transport, all these by things. By society itself, essentially. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so I really enjoy uh, the process of thinking outside of individual responsibility. So rather than just saying, you, know, you should make a better choice about what you eat, uh, mm. just, just eat healthier stuff. Uh, easier really, said than done. It is easier mm. said than done. Yeah, instead we ask the question, well, where can you access that food? Mm. Is it easy to make or, that choice or mm. is it really hard to make that or, choice? Or even a step further, how can you afford it or how can you cook it or all these other different things. Like I'm, I'm coming from a very much nutritional background before this. So when I look at it, it's like, well, this is all well and good. I was, actually, LinkedIn recently popped up something quite interesting on um, there's a few, few states in America which now are teaching cooking classes. And I was saying, this is all well and good, but the people who need to learn the cooking, like need to learn how to cook these fruits and vegetables and everything like that, often can't either can't access the location yes. or are working three or four jobs just to make ends meet in the first place, so they don't, just don't have time to cook. That's exactly right. I mean, it's like yeah, it's like you wonder why the problems are. It's like look around. Yeah, yeah, mm. exactly. So that's what I think of when I think of public health. I think about mm. those social determinants rather than just individual. Or bad choices. Yeah, so I suppose that adds on quite nicely to how sociology and youth work, uh, are inter- youth work and public health are inter- interconnected. Yeah, that's right. So again, we come back and think about young people, and we say, okay, well, what what do young people eat, consume? How do they exercise? Mm. Uh, what sort of health services do they access? And you can again just individualize that and say, right, those young people need to make better choices. Or you know, perhaps the other thing that we see is you know, young people have. Uh, overrepresented in, in mental health statistics. And so maybe we say something like, well, we can provide a counselling services or psychology services to young people, which is great, and we mm. should do that, absolutely. But in many ways, that individualises the issue. It says what you need to do is work one-to-one with that person to give them skills mm. or to change the way they think, and that will make them a healthier person. Without asking some of the questions about well, what are the contexts that they're living in mm. that perhaps give rise to or promote a mental health issue? Mm. Now, how do we change schools and the pressures and the expectations that go with schooling mm. that lead to mental health issues? How do we look at family life and, and again, we can extend it to you know, suburbs and the places that we live that are increasing the likelihood or increasing the pressure or you know, adding a whole range of additional layers of expectations on young people that previously weren't there for other generations. Mm. So it's a lot about kind of almost in very much public health. It's essentially uh, more about the prevention of it. So like with as you as you mentioned with the um, with the psychology and stuff, it's all well and good. But how about we work out why the hell all these people are depressed or why they got all these other issues? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's more yeah more about the why rather uh, the why and the how rather than um, the actual. Uh, but, or the why and the how, but before. So it's about before everything rather than afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, before before the issue, almost. Absolutely. And I like thinking, you know, the, the, the suburbs and the schools and all that sort of stuff, but also looking at our broader social narratives. What are, what are the stories or big ideas or, or what we would use in my topics is discourses, so the, you know, ideas that have a, a certain amount of force to them, like they, they exist and they kind of help shape the way we think and what how do they give rise to it so i mean a really obvious one that we talk about a lot is 
the, the major political discourse in our current culture is neoliberalism, which is, just sounds like a nasty big mm-hmm. word. But in its essence, it means a new form, neo, of liberalism or liberal, this philosophy that says protect individual rights. And this way of thinking promotes the idea that problems, economic problems, and then it kind of extends into government, government problems, and then what we're seeing now is extending into social problems as well, are best solved through a free market competition idea uh, so that we solve problems by giving the the service or set buying the product that is the best value for money uh, you know the cheapest cost uh, but gives you the best quality which kind of makes sense maybe if you're buying apples yeah or mm. a computer or something like that but when we start thinking about it in terms of services for vulnerable people mm. it creates a really it's not a one size fits all no, and it's competitive like mm. at its heart. So how do we set up a culture which is about individuals who can compete mm. and ignore questions like equity and equality and wonder why we end up with a whole bunch of mental health problems? Capitalism. But, yeah, <laughs> it's a classic capitalism mm. critique, but mm. it's yeah, looking at it from that kind of lens. Mm. Yeah, no, definitely, yeah. It's like it brings back like things of thinking of like closing the gap, for instance, where a lot of the uh, Aboriginal influencers who talk about this stuff, it's all about the fact that we need more um, community-based um, policies and programs and all this stuff that is based in the individual community, not in the community at, at, at a wide kind of every single community in the outback is all the same in the government's opinion sort of thing and now they create their policies, which is annoying. Yeah. And, and it creates more issues, as we've seen. Yeah, the, the added kind of layer of critique I add to that in many ways is asking the question, well, if we're going to provide a community service to whether it be an Aboriginal community or the local community centre in your suburb, how do you fund that? How mm. do you give money to it so that it exists? You know, well, one way and the dominant way of it happening at the moment is we have a government tendering process where the government says we want people to apply to offer this service and so people apply and offer the best service they can uh, offer, so the most service they can offer, for the cheapest amount mm. of money. That's how you win a tender, is you say, we'll do more for less. Right? Yeah. If you fund services like that, you're getting service providers to compete with each other for it. What you're essentially asking them to do is find ways to compromise on something mm. to deliver more service. Yeah. So what's going to be compromised on? Well, what usually is compromised on is the quality of the service. Mm. And it means that the staff perhaps aren't getting paid as much or don't need to be as qualified or there's an you know, incredible burden of uh, reporting. and um, Less time for actual help, yeah. which is the big one usually. Like Look at hospitals. That's exactly From right. 30 minutes when I, when I was a kid, like sort of like primary school to now, what is it, 10-minute turnaround yeah. maximum. So these are complicated problems, but if we try and quantify things when we're dealing with humans, we end up really dehumanising the system and losing sight of the thing that we really set out to do in the first place. Yeah. Yeah, no. So um, another. So going on to the next question, how did you end up working in your current field? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, it, not a straight line. <laughs> Is it ever? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think you know, you often get asked how does he... Yeah, you advise somebody who to end up in this sort of position, you're like, oh, I don't know, because it kind of just jumps around and you, you follow your nose a bit. But my uh, experience is, is really I wanted to uh, do some youth work. I was uh, attracted to and motivated by 
you know, big core values like justice and equity and peace and those sort of ideas. Uh, so I did some youth work for about 10 years, really, really enjoyed it, um, and then found some parts of that which I thought, gee, that could actually be done better. Uh, you know, perhaps we should have a little bit more evidence or certain types of evidence or have more insight into the way these programs are running rather than just being informed by kind of good intentions or uh, you know, broad principles. Um, so I wanted to do some research and got into becoming an academic. Yep, cool, yeah. So, yeah, no, that's cool. Um, so I suppose going into your research, which this is quite an interesting one, I find your research on bullying and loneliness, which... Um, I've experienced both in the past and still occasionally experience one or two occasionally. Yeah. Um, so what are you actually currently researching? It's a few different things. Um, like I said, it's at the connection of these ideas of bullying and loneliness. For me, they fit under a broad umbrella of young people's experiences with uh, violence and violation. And for some people, uh, that there might not be a clear connection there, but the idea is that violence isn't just you know, a physical fight, kind of like mm. what we were talking about before. That's the individualised version mm. of it, right? When I punch somebody else, it's individual. But I'm looking at the the social determinants of that, if yep. you like, you know, the social context of that leads to fights and, and uh, violence. And so that's why we talk about things like a violating mm. experience. So bullying is a really good example of that. And most people, when they think of bullying, will be like, okay, that interpersonal, somebody yelling at you, somebody um, p- physically picking on you. But there's some really interesting ways to understand forms of bullying that are largely invisible. And so I'm interested in the ways that there are kind of moral or emotional hierarchies in spaces, in classrooms mm-hmm. in particular, and that those uh, are really hard to observe without some very detailed, because it's really sophisticated the way that we communicate and use emotions to, to communicate with each other and set expectations. And so I'm really interested in the way that that gets employed by uh, powerful students. And what I mean by that is you might remember from your own experience in school, you know, usually in your class, there's a class clown, right? Everyone knows who that, who that is? About five of them in the class I had. <laughs> At least one, maybe five. Uh, and usually there's also some, let's call them broadly popular students. Right? And uh, popular's obviously got a lot you could talk about and unpack in it, but it, in another way of saying that is they have power, right? that they can mm-hmm. control social circumstances. And sometimes they are uh, popular with the students and sometimes they're popular with the teacher. And so that gives them power mm-hmm. as well. And so teachers, through no fault of their own, again, I'm not about individualising, I'm not going to blame teachers, mm-hmm. but they kind of use and co-opt the, that power in the classroom to help control it mm-hmm. and create an educational environment. So all that's really complex and interesting, but it sets up ways that certain students have power and can bully and others can't. Mm. And certain students can get away with bullying and others can't. And that's the kind of stuff that mm. I'm interested in. Yeah. So, yeah, why people bully, essentially. Yeah, mm. yeah. Why and how and what does that mm. look like from a social perspective rather than saying that person's a bad person because they're a bully. Mm. Yeah. You've spoken a lot about the bullying there, but what about the loneliness side that you do? Yeah, the loneliness is connected. I mean, it, it seems obvious at one level because if you're being bullied, you're probably lonely. Uh, but a loneliness as well as this complex experience from a social perspective. You can kind of look at it from... The other word that's used is sometimes social connection, and you can measure social connection kind of quite quantitatively. You can say how many connections does a person have, mm-hmm. and that can give you an insight into that. But... Uh, loneliness is a subjective experience. It's about mm. saying that I want more connections than I have. 
And so it doesn't really matter how many you have. You could have none, and if you're happy with that, you're not lonely. Uh, you could have 10, and if you're not happy with that, you're still lonely. Yeah. And so it's a subjective experience of pain. Mm. I want something that I don't have, and maybe that's outside of my control. Uh, and so therefore, I look at the context that that person is in and say, how did they end up being lonely? Maybe it was as a result of bullying. Maybe it was some mm. other co- complex social interaction. Yep. Yeah, no, cool, yeah. So... Um yeah, um, why did you choose uh, choose to um, focus on bullying and loneliness as a kind of career path for a better term? Because that is a huge focus on a lot of your research that I've looked at. Yeah, it's again like a question of how did you get here? It's a little bit of passion and interest and values and a little bit of follow your nose. Mm. The other part of it that's really important for the way I work is I'm trying as much as possible and it's kind of an imperfect uh, goal is to centre young people in everything that I do. So it's, it's not about my agenda as much as possible. That obviously leaks in, obviously I'm yeah. part of that, uh, but also about young people's agendas. So w- when I started my PhD, I had a bit of an idea of what I wanted to do, but as I did some interviews with young people, what became really clear was this com- emphasis on uh, violence. And then in uh, the work I'm doing around bullying, I kind of thought this is something that's worth talking about, but then you go in and have a conversation with young people and say, what does it look like in your context? So allowing them or facilitating or borrowing from their leadership is kind of the thing that I'm interested in doing. And these are issues that are really important to young people. Bullying Mm. and loneliness Mm. are things that they consistently talk about. And so that's why I'm interested. Yeah, no, definitely. It's cool. Um, Any of it personal experience in the past? For sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the... Statistics around bullying is that basically everyone will experience it at some time, mm. and the same with loneliness. It, it's going to be. It's not a question of have you experienced this. You mm. probably have. It's when, yeah, uh, yeah. So absolutely, I had those things myself. Mm, yeah, no, I was, thought I had there at the same time, and just kind of uh, put my finger on what it was. Um, it was a good one too. Ah, <laughs> uh, it'll come back to you. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, where are we? Uh, research. Um, what have you learnt and how might they impact um, either social work or public health in the future or even policy? Great question. So I brought in some statistics because I thought you might find this interesting. Oh, sorry. Uh, Actually, can I uh, – I just remembered the question I was yeah, going to ask before. What uh, – do you do quantitative or qualitative research more? Great question. And why? Yeah, okay. So I'm highly qualitative. Uh, I'm not very good with the numbers. Uh, I just really don't focus on the reason is I really enjoy the story so Mm -hmm. I love sitting and listening to people and hearing their story I find that really rewarding personally but I also find them to have incredible rich insights and that's the bit that I enjoy doing is saying okay we have this issue how can we understand it better what do we need to know about this and that's part of the centering of young people as well you know rather than coming in and and doing a quantitative survey of some sort and having that that data represented that way i'm really interested in the young people telling me what the issue is and so listening to their stories doing interviews doing focus groups having conversations that's the bit that i do is that partly because of your youth worker background i'm guessing absolutely yeah Um, see see i'm very much uh the same in that sense i i i don't say numbers lie but that, but 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 they're often misrepresented. Uh, like, look at uh, I, I I don't know why, but I always flock back to closing the gap. Sure. Closing the gap. It's it's obvious that we're failing massively. Mm. I think, as I said, I think it's only two goals that we've met. 
Mm. Or maybe three, but not many. Either way, out of the 16 or something goals that they have. Yeah, wow. It's, yeah, very sad. And I think part of it's due to the fact that everything's statistical. Yeah, they, sure. they, they don't, they very rarely will go into an individual community and say, hey, how can we help? Mm. What can we do for you and your community in particular? Not all the other communities around you, but just your community. Yeah, I mean, you can manipulate qualitative data mm. as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd absolutely, yeah, because it's all opinion in a lot of it's opinion-y sort of stuff. Yeah. But, but, but um, kind of in a way, I think both of them, they go hand in hand in a lot of ways um, because without the um, statistical data to back up the um, the uh, quantitative data, wait, yeah, that's right, quantitative data, um, it's it does become a little bit hard to see, which is where I kind of like, but I see the need for both, but very much I'm. I think that sometimes the people uh, we set this real dichotomy between quantitative and qualitative data, and as if they're solely different mm. beasts. And not only are they useful and important to use together, but when we really drill down to what the data looks like, sometimes they're actually can be both or mm. there's not a clear line. Yeah. But what I hear in what you're describing is um, the importance of raising the voices of the people who are most affected mm. because if you're going to man- raise their voice to be the, the key uh, speakers and, and owners of truth in, in and around social issues, then you're going to find it very difficult to kind of spin a different story. Uh, so that, that connection... Mm. back to the people who are affected most, I think is... Yeah, no, yeah, definitely, yeah. So, um, as I going back to that other question, sorry, otherwise I would have forgotten forgotten it again. Um, uh, Where are we? So, what have you learnt and how might it impact, um, in your research, and how might it impact um, either social work, public health, or um, policy in the future? So, I've got some some statistics for you around some of the impacts of of things like bullying and loneliness, because they are... Very quickly show the the impact. So we'll start with loneliness this time. So 2021, World Health Organization declares loneliness and social isolation a, quote, growing public health and public policy concern. So this is Mm -hmm. acknowledging the massive impact of it. Give a little bit of uh, further insight to what that impact looks like. Loneliness is being compared to smoking 15 cigarettes a day or having six alcoholic drinks a day. That's the kind of impact that it has on your health. Uh, and it, the result is, of course, a significant increase in um, mortality. Uh, there's something like a 26% increased risk of death for people who are experiencing you know, long-term loneliness. Um, so that's pretty significant. Right. That's going to have a huge impact on people, communities, etc. Did, did that have much to do, because I know 2021 was a hard time for a lot of people, yeah. did that kind of overlap a bit with COVID as well? Or was that was some of this research pre-COVID as well? Lots of it was pre-COVID. Okay. And in many ways, uh, COVID kind of highlighted and exacerbated yeah. the issue that already existed. So yeah. I think it was 2018 that the UK was the first country in the world to appoint a minister for loneliness. So pre-pandemic. Mm-hmm. Japan had one not long after that. Mm-hmm. Australia doesn't have one, as far surprise, as I'm aware. Surprise. Yeah. But, but so this is a significant issue, and it's mm. been known for a while. The interesting thing about it, and I think COVID helped highlight this, is that, of course, most of the time it's thought about as a problem for older people, um, retirees, yep. that sort of stuff. We know that young people are significantly mm. impacted, significant uh, cohort are impacted by this issue. Uh, and it seems like it's really kind of I think it's too preliminary in many ways, but 
um, the idea is that life transitions have a massive impact on loneliness. It kind of has an intuitive mm. logic to it. You know, you move, you, you let's say, talk about the old people, um, you, you leave your job and you retire, mm-hmm. significant life transition, you lose a lot of your social connections. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. But with young people, it's like you move out of your house. You move cities to go and study. Mm-hmm. You get it yeah. or change your job. You become a parent. Mm-hmm. You know, all these things are significant life changes that often, often radically change your social circumstances. And, of course, you're going to experience disconnection mm. and loneliness during that time. So that's loneliness. The other one to note, and kind of we were talking earlier mm. about the prevalence of it, this is a good sort of statistic to back that up. So 2015, 43% of Australian Year 8 students were bullied every month. So almost mm-hmm. half yeah. of people in Year 8 were bullied mm. every single month. And the survey from Mission Australia, they do the annual youth survey, so last year, found 47% of young people between the ages of about 15 and 19 were either extremely, or the next category down in the survey, was somewhat concerned about bullying. So again, still almost half of yeah. young people, uh, this is a significant concern for them. And bullying has well-known uh, physical and mental health impacts, anxiety, mm. depression, or the high blood pressure, mm. all those sort of things. So. This is a significant issue that mm. we need to solve, and we're not doing a very good job of it. Yeah, no, definitely, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I suppose going on to probably both of it, one of our favourite topics is podcasting. <laughs> um, Here we are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so um, what is your podcast about? My podcast is called Making and Breaking Social Policy, and it probably sounded really interesting until I said the word policy. It, it, honestly, <laughs> it, I'm not joking. It, like, I'm not exaggerating. It is probably one of my favorite podcasts. Oh, wow. That's a yeah, compliment. Thanks, man. Yeah. Appreciate it, that. Yeah. Interesting people on there. You have really good, interesting people that you talk to. It it doesn't feel very policy-like in a lot of, a lot of ways. It just has a lot of issues that are in the forefront of the world right now. Thank you. I appreciate that. I mean, that's really the aim in many ways is to mm. not talk about or not spend time like reading tracks of policy, mm. but to talk about yeah, big issues. Do that. Yeah, no, no, I don't want to do that. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, talk about those big issues instead. And so this podcast came out of the topics that I teach here in social work at Flinders. Uh, so I teach the policy topics, social policy topics in both the bachelor's and the master's. Uh, and so I wanted to create a different way to engage students in the topic. It's actually hilariously well-known internationally that social work students hate the policy topics in their degree. Like they, well, it's pretty mm. uh, logical in many ways mm. because they come in, social workers, because they usually want to work with people and oh, have yeah, conversations yeah. with people. And so mm. they say, policy, that sounds boring. And there's some of the things that are in, in the literature, everything from very polite ways of putting it, you know, they're they're kind of resistant or mm. uh, a little unsure or that sort of stuff. And other people just flat out say, look, they find it boring. It's, <laughs> they find it really intimidating. And you're like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. So we want to create a, a different way to get access to it. That's why we created the podcast. I, I, I wonder if it's partly because people don't understand the need for, like, need for it. Like, uh, like for me, it's a bit weird because like I, I actually just did um, the innovation topic, you know, 101 oh, down nice. in Tonsley last term. Cool. And it was one of those electives like, oh, okay, I'll give it a go. And first week I was like, this is horrible. It's like there's no point to it for public health. But the more you look at it, it's like, well, design thinking. Yeah. If we add design thinking the same way like Netflix does okay. to public health, um, just as I said, design thinking, the how might weeds, the all these other different things like that that are added. This innovation sort of topic, 
um, and this innovation stuff in public health, you could have a lot more like, better things. And the more my RBI is like these skills are so transferable mm. to health, and it actually made sense me doing it after a couple of weeks. And I was like, yeah, okay, that's great. But I think yeah, kind of with the policy, it's like I don't know if people are just kind of they don't see the need for it. I think. Yeah. yeah, I think that might be part of it is explaining to people maybe on the first day why they actually need to learn basic policy. Absolutely. Yeah. I think there's a couple other things that kind of set people in a space where they're disinterested into it. I think one of those is the Australian culture around politics. So policy sounds like politics, sounds like the kind of thing that people, politicians do. Mm. And most Australians would rather not talk about <laughs> politics if they didn't have to. Uh, and they find politicians really frustrating and annoying, which is completely valid and I understand all that. But it's not about the politics of it necessarily. It doesn't matter who you are aligned with. Uh, It's about talking about big issues and ideas. Mm. And that's the the bit that I'm really trying to encourage my students to do is that they kind of come in wanting, like I said, to work with individuals, but they have to look up from that and understand that the services that they might be working in and offering – only exist because of policy. Mm. They only exist because of politics. You know, a new government might come in tomorrow and defund the program that they're part of, and that's it. They can't mm. give that service anymore. Mm. So policy and politics literally makes the opportunity to give their service or breaks it, and that's why that making mm. and breaking language. But the interesting thing and the fun thing for social workers in many cases is actually the reverse is true as well. So you have a policy that creates a service that you work in now, you can deliver that service in the way that it was intended in the policy, and therefore you are making that policy happen. Or you might say, looking at this policy, I realise that there are some limitations, perhaps there are some compromises, perhaps there are even some ways that it actually breaks social work values and practices. So am I going to do that? Or am I going to find creative ways to resist Uh, to be a bit subversive, to work with and around the system, and therefore I am breaking the policy in some ways. Um, And there are other opportunities to do advocacy, et cetera, and back up the line and kind of change policy that way as Mm. well. But I think for many social work students, it appeals to them the idea of going, okay, I can work in this service and also uphold my values in kind of subversive and creative ways. Mm. Yeah, so that's why we talk about making and breaking social policy. Yeah, yeah, cool. Um... So you also answered why why you started it in that question as well, I suppose. Sorry so, about that. Yeah, two questions in one. Um, what has been the most eye-opening thing um, you've learnt since you started podcasting and why? I would say um, I didn't realise how much I enjoy the experience because it's just like doing qualitative interviews. Mm. It's just like working as a, with a youth worker. You get to have really interesting mm. conversations with people. So that, I think, has been one of the best bits. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, podcasting is awesome. Yeah, for me, part of it, the reason I like podcasting is um, I'm very much a auditory learner. So, like, I like podcasts because I learn more from them. Mm. Just as I'm not the best typer, like as as you saw with the questions, they're a bit, <laughs> they're a bit uh, grammatically gram- incorrect. So it's like blogs and things for me are out of the question. So these are really good because I can still get that, those same points across, but through yeah. a podcast. So yeah. yeah. I think one of the things I'm thinking about at the moment as well is that there's lots and lots of benefits to podcasts, but there are some challenges as well. I'm really grappling with those at the moment because 
like what you said, this medium works better for some people, but it actually works worse for others. Mm. And so I'm trying to think about how best to accommodate more diverse learning mm. styles and some of the uh, overcome some of those challenges that come with podcasts too. Mm. I have to have a quick talk about it afterwards. I've got a couple of ideas for you there. Brilliant. Mm. Um, so. What's been your favourite episode you d- you've done so far? I couldn't come up with one. I'm sorry, I tried. <laughs> what, what, what are your highlighted ones uh, like out of, say, all the ones you've done? What ones would you recommend above all else for someone who doesn't know anything about social work, policy, making, breaking, any of it? Oh, great questions, man. Oh, I, I would say if you're interested in taking a look, actually just start anywhere, mm. but pick a topic that interests you. Uh, so some of them, because the podcast is very diverse in terms of the topics it covers, uh, will probably just not be interesting at all. Mm. And that, that's fine. Um, but, yeah, just find something that you go, oh, I'd like to know a little bit more about that. Um, and that's probably the best place to start. Uh, it is uh, just very conversational. And I think that's the ones that I enjoy the most is when the people come on and we're able to go, oh, just you know, put your script down. <laughs> just have a conversation mm. uh, so yeah I don't, I don't know which one to point you to I'm sorry but it's okay yeah. yeah no yeah it kind of have the same in some extent to some extent um, so I suppose getting close to uh, finishing up now um, where do you see yourself in the future ooh uh, I'm really enjoying what I'm doing like right now so I'd like to keep doing it um, Flinders yeah. <laughs> yeah look the the combination of, of the balanced academic role that I'm in is, is really a joy. Uh, I feel very, very privileged to be in it. So the, combining research with teaching uh, is is very mutually beneficial. And you know there are different roles around like teaching only and research only, and they're good for people in, in different stages and phases. But I feel really lucky to be able to have something that I'm really passionate about in our research and that feed into the teaching that I do and then that yeah. go back the other way. So I'd like to keep doing it for a bit. Yep, yeah, no, definitely. Cool. So um, what would you say to someone wanting to get into the field, into like, into your field of work? Yeah, great. If you're interested in working with young people and you know, become a youth worker where I started, uh, a social work qualification is a great start. Uh, there are youth work specific degrees around as well. So I encourage people to look into those. There's one here in South Australia. There's one in WA and four in Victoria. I think, and so. most TAFEs have something similar as well. Yeah, that's right. Most TAFEs have a cert uh, four level, diploma level, and they're, they're also a really good start, but I do obviously encourage mm. people to keep their learning oh, going no, absolutely. and get a yeah, yeah. degree level qualification. Yeah, no, absolutely. I also, like, for me, like I started with TAFE because I didn't have those points. And a lot, and as, as you would probably know from meeting a lot of the bachelor's students, there's a fair chunk of them at our mature age because they've seen all these issues, like they've yes. come from like nursing or other areas and then realised, hang on, like this is actually way more interesting. So they end up either, or even then, like a lot of them experienced a lot of the things you t- you've, you've talked about. So a lot of them may have not finished high school. So t- doing the TAFE equivalent or tech college for the Americans who may not know what TAFE is, um, method is also a great way of doing it as well, I think. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, it is a really great pathway. And, yeah. Yeah. yeah, especially as a pathway to uni, yeah. Yeah. So what materials would you recommend for students, people um, interested in this sort of thing? Obviously, your podcast would be one. Um, any others that you could think of? Oh, there's lots of good ones. Um, I would recommend uh, checking out 
there's a oh, what's oh, I've forgotten its name. There's a YouTube channel that does a whole bunch of um, different disciplines, and they have a sociology discipline. And the the YouTube channel is really well curated. I'll just have to give if, you. The, the yeah, link. if you look it up, yeah, yes, yeah, I'd send me. I'll get you to send me a link with, um, to all the bits and pieces you mentioned, and I'll yeah. add it into the show notes. Great. So that's a great lead in to, uh, to some of the really tricky ideas and fun ideas mm. that go with with sociology, which is really great. Um, there, are, there's just so many really good resources around. I think the best thing to do, and I often encourage people to do this, is. If you're in a topic and you want to know more about it, talk to your lecturer about it. But if you uh, want to, um, if you see an academic or you, you're interested in a topic and you read a paper or you, you see them in a podcast or you know, see them in a podcast, hear them in a podcast. You could see, see them, them in a, video, a podcast, video. Could, just video. To, yeah. uh, get in contact with them because good academics love that. They're, if you are interested in their work, they will give you the time of day and more. Mm. Uh, and they have really great resources. Yeah. Mm. The only other place I would say to go off the top of my head is do check out The Conversation. So if you haven't encountered that already, uh, that is a really great place where academics write um, news, news style articles, so accessible plain language stuff about their research. Uh, I've written a couple of pieces there as well. It's, it's really good value. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, the Conversation is absolutely awesome and there's very little... Um, I don't want to say bad science is the wrong word, but there's very little um, poorly written things on the conversation as well. It's very well maintained. Totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. So um, to finish up, how can people contact you if they want to get in touch either with about your research or maybe joining Flinders because they want to become become a, become a youth worker sociologist or something? I don't know. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So how do uh, people contact you? A couple of really easy ways. I have, as all academics here at Flinders do, a, a staff profile page, which is got really, it's actually really well laid out mm-hmm. and uh, got some great connections to all the research and things that staff do here. So just Google my name and Flinders and you'll get that staff page. Or you can follow me on Twitter. Twitter still exists for now. Uh, it's still doing something. And I regularly post on there any of new, new things I produce, etc. So that, that's a place to follow as well. Yep, cool, yeah. So, um, yeah, thanks for um, being on the podcast. It was re- yeah, actually really eye-opening and quite good. Um, thank you. Part of it. Yep, bye.